Amen. Well, my heart is filled, full, very full this morning, filled with joy. Um, it was just a, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's kind of a mixture of emotions for me to, in the span of about five minutes, to uh, see some of the faces and hear some of the voices of the men who have impacted my life the most. And that just kind of was an overwhelming experience all at once um, from John Piper, a man who has shaped my heart and my life, of whom I owe a great debt of gratitude to, who has helped bring me and shape me into the man that I am by God's grace, to my fellow pastors who have encouraged me profoundly in these 10 years in ministry, and the uh, chief of which is my own father, who uh, has had a bigger impact on me than any man I've ever studied under or been discipled by. And then to the last voice, which was, some of you may not know, on the uh, audio was Andy Hamilton, uh, our dear friend that we support uh, overseas in the Far East. And what an impact, what an impact he has had, uh, profound. In fact, even this sermon this morning is so shaped uh, by Andy's influence in my life. And so how I thank God for these realities And I thank God for you, my dear church, the church that I certainly love the most. Thank you for your faithfulness to me, your love for me over the years, your kindness, your gratitude. I am a very, very blessed man, and I thank God for all of his kindnesses to me this morning. Let's go before God again in prayer, and let's plead with him to give us assistance and enablement as we preach from his awesome awesome word. Let's pray. Father, we are absolutely desperate for you. We cannot, we cannot do anything. We cannot affect change. We cannot do anything of significant value in this life without your divine grace and enablement. We need your spirit. We need the power of your presence Father, I don't even want this prayer to be perfunctory and mechanical. I want you to hear, oh God, this morning. And we pray that hearts would be stirred right now to agree together with me in prayer that you would come, Lord, that you would hover over this place, that you would drop down and bless us with your presence. We do not want another mechanical meandering through the text of the Bible. We want to be affected by the Spirit of God as you preach to us, Lord, through a weak and pitiful vessel, Lord. Would you come and do that, Lord? Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and there isn't any greater thing for our hope to be built on than that, Lord. So come and give us your solid sense of nearness in this hour. We need you. We can't know holiness and perseverance without you. We can't know how to live and love and conduct ourselves without you. We can't know power and anointing for ministry without you. And we certainly can't be constant in prayer without your help. We can't do any holy thing that you've called us to without your divine enablement. So come and help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the focus today is on prayer in this third of Four farewell addresses to our church, the place of prayer uh, in the Bible, and the place of prayer in your life and in the life of our church. Peter says, I think it is right, while as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up 
by way of reminder. So there's really nothing new. Uh, there's not a whole lot of new landscape that we're going to till up this morning, but there is, um, I trust, a, a great benefit and blessing for us to remember and to refocus our priorities on the thing that matters the most. And so this sermon represents my last opportunity uh, as a pastor of you to stir you up concerning the place and the priority of prayer in your life and in the life of our church. And uh, the last time that I spoke on this subject, I, I remember I started with a series of questions. I asked us, I said, what is the what is the surest evidences or indications that a local church is alive and well? Would it be its gospel-centered worship? Certainly, we would say that's a vital component, and without it, we will not worship God as we ought. Is it the accurate and orthodox preaching of God's Word? I Certainly, we would insist that if a church is to be healthy, it must be instructed with the Word of God. Is it the active engagement of all the members uh, in ministry, which has been an emphasis for us for years? Certainly that is a biblical model. Is it a church that is living on mission and experiencing conversions and seeing baptisms and seeing real fruitfulness evangelistically? Again, we would say that is a good indicator of life and vitality. In fact, all these things may be evidences that a church is, in fact, healthy. But there is another dimension that gives further and more convincing evidence as to the vitality and life of a local church, and it's this. Is there a desire for, a commitment to, and a consistency in individual and corporate prayer? When the music fades, when the outreach event comes to an end, when the sermon is over, the question is this, what are the people doing? How are the people of the church spending their time? If you look at church history and you look down through the pages of church history, I'm thinking of the Westminster Assembly and other groupings of men of God, great men of God who gather to preach and to write theology they would preach for an hour, then they would pray for an hour. They would sometimes preach for two hours. They would plead with God in prayer for two hours, something that is almost completely unheard of in our present day. We can hardly sit for an hour through a service at times, and we certainly don't have the patience to pray for an hour or two, a sustained season of prayer, one man after the other. It's, it's wild. It's like as if when one man ends his prayer, the other man picks up that flow of thought and presses it down the field even further, and somebody picks it up and presses it even further, and somebody picks it up and prays it even further, and the prayers mount, and the anointing of God in those places was profound. And today in America, we're known for lots of things. We're known for our conferences, our seminars, our evangelical superstars. We're known for our preaching, for our teaching we're known for our organization and our strategy. We're known for our planning and planting of churches. But I, I'm afraid that we are not known for our praying and our fasting. And in this, in this, friends, I am convinced that we uh, are in profound danger of missing the whole point of the Christian life and the purpose 
of the local church. While we have a right emphasis on the preached word of God, for which I am very thankful, my question to us this morning is, where is the equally right emphasis on the praying of God's people? Acts says to us very clearly that we should devote ourselves to the word of God and, and to prayer. And to prayer. So if that is true, then why is it that you and I can spend or will spend hours every week devoted to a ministry of the Word of God while we spend only mere minutes each week devoted to a ministry of prayer. So easy for that to happen, especially when we consider this one fact, which is historical fact and precedence, that every mighty movement of God in the course of human history from Nehemiah to the Great Awakening was birthed in the profound and powerful prayers of God's people. God wills for us to be a praying people. And yet we are marked by, and I am putting myself in this category, marked by so much apathy when it comes to prayer. I think that what's happened is that we have fundamentally learned how to live life without an expressed need for God. I mean, of course, we say that we need God. We say that. We utter those words, but functionally speaking, are we really, are we really desperate for God? And what does the evidence suggest? Let's just bring this home for a moment to our local context. If someone were to come in here from the outside and examine our church, if someone were to look at Heritage Baptist Church, would they conclude that prayer is the visible engine that runs this church? Would they see tangible, identifiable evidences that prayer is the source by which this entire congregation gets its power? Would they conclude that prayer is the center of our life together? And if not, why would they not conclude such a thing? Could it be that we have assumed that prayer, while extremely important, which we think we would all say, maybe does not necessitate such a place of prominence in our life together? Should we conclude, for example, that as long as prayer is simply embedded into our weekly rhythm as a local church, I mean, we have a ladies' prayer meeting, we have a Wednesday prayer meeting, we have a Sunday morning prayer meeting, right? Wednesday evening prayer meeting, while we have these things, that since prayer is simply embedded into our weekly rhythm of the church, that we are praying as God intends, and he is perfectly well-pleased with all that we're doing when it comes to the subject and the matter of prayer. I, I don't think any of us would admit that. But if prayer, then, is not the engine that runs the church, that begs the question, what is the truth is, friends, it is possible to grow a large and successful church in America without prayer. It happens all the time. A large church is no indication as to its health, nor is a small church necessarily. In fact, it's fairly easy to build a massive church in America simply by being creative, enterprising, charismatic, and clever. But to establish a church that lasts for generations and makes an eternal impact is a totally separate issue. It is also possible to be a church that enjoys the respect and admiration of the community in which it lives 
without prayer? Because it has other virtues that it's respected for, love, compassion, theological maturity, all good and appropriate things. But maintaining, hear me, respect in the city and operating with a holy anointing and power from on high are two very, very different things. It's not respect that we're after fundamentally. We're after an anointing and a blessing from God on high. And I'm interested in that for us as a church, not the former. I do want us to be respected. That is not my first concern. Listen, if you have an anointing from God in prayer and through prayer, you will be respected. Respect cannot be the first thing that we look for. God must be the first thing that we look for. And my contention is that the difference between these churches, churches that are just respected for their sort of natural gifts and enablements, their general posture in the city of being uh, a clever, enterprising, growing, thriving body, the difference between that and a church that is deeply and heavily anointed by God is fundamentally rooted in a desire for, a commitment to, and a consistency in both corporate and individual prayer. And so in this third of four closing messages to our church, I want to examine the priority and the place of prayer in our life together. And my desire is for God to place a new confidence and a new conviction in you that prayer is the pathway to all the virtues that we need so much. Holiness, perseverance, Faith, hope, joy, faithfulness, contentment, love, delight in God. That prayer is the spring from which all these virtues flow. That there is really nothing more foundational in the Christian life than prayer. And that prayer is the sin qua non of all spiritual disciplines. It is second to none. It's the highest. And now I asked Jason this morning to read Romans 12, 12, which says, Be constant. In prayer, not a command, not a suggestion, a command. And that's why I entitled the message, Keep Praying, Keep Praying. It's such a hard discipline that Paul has to tell us in multiple places to keep doing it and not to quit. It's hard. Prayer is hard. First Thessalonians 5 says, Pray, pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing means, of course, to persevere in prayer. It means to be devoted to the habit of prayer. It means don't give up. It means don't slack off. It means be disciplined in it. It is the opposite of random. It's the opposite of occasional, once in a while, sporadic, intermittent. It's the opposite of that. Paul is calling all believers to be regular, to be consistent, to be disciplined and habitual in their pursuit of God through prayer. And my burden is that you will treat prayer in this coming year, as a medicine for which if you do not take it, you will die. Right? So if you were sick with a terminal disease and you knew that there was a pill that you had to take for which if you stopped taking it, you would die, my, my guess is you would take it every day. But for some reason, when it comes to the matter of prayer, we do not treat prayer with such importance. And yet it is that important and that's actually a very fitting analogy because our time with God is that important. 
spiritually speaking. And when it comes to prayer, slacking off, pushing it aside, refusing to do it will inevitably result in a crisis of faith. Prayer is not to be relegated to the leftovers of, your, of our Christian life, the leftovers of our time with God. It should be the bulk of your time with God. Now, most of us have, I, I hope and I trust, a discipline of reading God's Word on a daily basis. And yet, what is hard for us is to pray consistently on a daily basis to press into the presence of God, to spend time not just reading his word, but speaking back to God on the basis of his word. That's harder for us. But here's the point I want to press home to you this morning, is that all relationships okay, suffer for lack of focused attention. If I don't spend time, if you don't spend time with your spouse, then your relationship will grow distant. If, if you do not spend time with your children, eventually they will grow estranged from you. And if we do not spend concentrated, focused time with God in prayer, our relationship with Him will be fractured. And this morning I have one point, one overarching thesis that I want to press onto your heart and soul, and it's this, this morning. Here it is. The highest aim... The highest aim in prayer, of prayer, is not to get something from God, but to get God himself. To say it another way, maybe this is helpful, the highest aim of prayer is not to receive things from God, but to know God. It's the highest aim, the greatest ambition, the, the most fundamental purpose of our praying is to know God. It is to get God. It is to be with God. It's been said that we become like those we spend time with. And to know God in prayer is to become like God. And that means that the primary point of prayer is not that God will change my circumstances, but that God will change me. And so often we go to prayer saying, oh God, oh God, I want you to change this circumstance in my life. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And God says, I want to do something in you. In you. Sometimes we hear stories of answered prayer and it's thrilling and encouraging and hopeful. It fuels our faith. But if we're not careful, it can also create a selfish ambition in prayer. We can start praying because we want to see God do things. And that's not bad, but it's just it can become, it can become unbalanced. And, and while it's right to want to see the hand of God, where is our equally strong desire to see the face of God? We want to see God's hand move, but God is saying, I want you to see my face. I want you to know me. One of the evidences that our motivation for prayer has become misguided is that we tend to live with a skepticism about prayer. We pray and we wonder if prayer is really working. You know, haven't we all pleaded with God for the healing of a friend or for the salvation of a loved one, only to feel that those prayers have fallen on deaf ears? Haven't we sometimes been tempted to think that God is only answering the most holy ones among us, those who are the most holy, you know, the ones who pray more hours or pray with greater passion? We pray for God to grant us this thing or that thing, and when it doesn't happen, we feel like throwing in the towel on prayer. But think about what that reveals about our, our understanding of prayer. I would suggest that it reveals 
that we are often more concerned with what God is doing for us rather than what God is doing in us through prayer. Now, may I flip our perspective this morning? May I challenge us not to view prayer fundamentally as getting something from God, but as getting God himself. The value of prayer for Jesus did not rise or fall on whether it worked or not. Think about it. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to avoid death, and in a sense, it didn't work. Didn't work. He prayed, he pleaded with the Father, if it is your will, please remove this cup from me, and it did not happen. Didn't happen. Didn't get what he prayed for. But avoiding death was not, was not his highest aim. For Jesus, prayer was about fellowship and communion with his Father, not mere results. Not getting something merely, which means prayer is not a means to an end. Prayer is the end in itself because prayer is communion with God and communion with God is our highest aim. In Luke 11, chapter 1, there's chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I think that's an amazing statement. There's a couple of things there that are often passed over when we read that. One is notice that the disciple does not interrupt Jesus while he is praying. It says, after, after he prayed or when he had finished, he approached him. There was no interrupting Jesus in that sacred moment. It was sacred, set apart, undivided attention, there is no way they were interrupting Jesus in that moment. The second thing that is often missed when, when one reads this text is he says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Notice the disciple did not come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to preach. He did not come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to walk on water. He did not come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to raise the dead or teach us how to cast out demons. He said, teach us how to pray. Jesus was a man of prayer. And, and why would they say that to Jesus? I think because you, if you want to learn something from someone, you go to an expert in that subject. Jesus was an expert. Jesus was the greatest praying man that has ever existed. And so they go to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. Now, let me ask us a probing question. When people hear you pray, do they hear someone who knows God? Do they, or do they hear, when they hear us pray, do they hear the rhythm of a religion? The words taught to us by mere men, form, intellect. Or do they hear a man or woman who spends much time in the presence of God? We pray not first because we want to receive things from God, but because we want to know God. Andrew Murray put it this way very succinctly. He said, some people pray just to pray, and some people pray to know God. And friends, therein lies the difference. And what I'm arguing for this morning is that our highest aim in prayer is not answers to prayer, but communion and fellowship with God. I wonder for you this morning, how many of you, that's a paradigm shift, and I hope that it is for some of you. 
I want to leave you this morning with an appetite to pray simply because you want to know God. I want to leave with you a desire to spend time with God simply because you love God, not because you want something from God. A relationship is what we're after, a relationship where God speaks to you through his word and you speak back to him on the basis of that word. We're talking about communion with God. Now, sometimes people will say things like this. They'll say, well, you know, why pray if God already knows everything that we need before we even ask? And I like uh, the response that George MacDonald gives to that. He says this. He says, what if prayer is the thing that we need first and foremost? What if the good lies in this, that, the, that these needs drive us to God? Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs, and prayer is the beginning of that communion. That is one fundamental reason why God makes us needy, because in making us needy, he makes us want him. That's well said. You know, when I was in college, Pastor Mark referenced a few weeks ago campus outreach. And I was also one who was in campus outreach. And while we were in the campus outreach ministries, a very healthy parachurch organization in America, many of us were discipled in that context. And while I was discipled uh, in campus outreach, a man came to me and asked me, of course, I think Mark and others could testify that we were asked this question many times, what is your purpose in life? Another way it was framed is, what's your vision? What's your vision for life? What do you want to do with your life was the, was the idea. And the answer that was drilled into us from Scripture was this, to know God and to make him known. Very simple. I mean, I can't think of a more a pithy or helpful way to put our purpose in life, to know God and to make him known. Very, very simple. And, and so helpful. And yet, and I'm arguing this morning that the primary place that we get to know God is on our knees in secret over his word in prayer. Okay, there's a lot of descriptors there. On our knees in secret over his word in prayer. And that's the primary place where we get to know God. Our spiritual health and vitality are directly related to our regular engagement, not sporadic, not intermittent, our regular engagement with God in prayer. And this is so important because the allurements, the trappings of this world are too many and too strong for us to rip through whole days and whole weeks with little communion with God. We are not built to endure that. And so I want to talk to us in the second half of this message about knowing God, okay? Because that's what the aim of prayer is, right? To know God. So let's just go to Jeremiah chapter 9, which Jason read for us this morning, Jeremiah 9, and we'll put the verses on the screen so that you can see if you do not have your Bible. Verses 23 and 24, we read the following words. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he two things understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, if you can remember the story of Jeremiah, then this will be easy for you. If you do not, let me see if I can refresh your memory. Jeremiah brought a terrible charge against God's people. His indictment was, his indictment was they did not know God. 
Interesting, that's what he's talking about here. So they did not know God. It was a time of false prophets, dangerous ministries, unloving shepherds, and the knowledge of God had been lost, Jeremiah says. We even read in chapter 2, verse 8, that even the priests did not seek to know God. Israel was in a terrible shape. And so he indicts the people saying that they had hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water. They had lost the knowledge of God. And by that, Jeremiah means two things, to lose the knowledge of God. He meant two things. One, they had lost the objective knowledge of God. That is, they no longer understood who God was. They did not have a clear sense of his attributes, of his character, of who he is, what God, who God was, and what God was like. They lost the objective knowledge of God. And two, they lost their experiential and relational knowledge of God. God was estranged from them. They did not know God with personal faith and trust. God was a concept. God was not a father. God was not close to them. And they had lost that. And Jeremiah indicts the people of God for that. And God, God speaks to his people through Jeremiah's prophetic voice. And, 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 and he says that these people, they talk about God, but they do not walk with God. They say the right things, but their hearts are far from him. And God responds to them with these sobering, sobering words. Here's what God says in response. He says, you sit and you speak against your brother. He says, you slander your own mother's son, sons. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. You know what he's saying? God is saying that you live your life contrary to God and because God seems, seems to do nothing about it, right? You're living sinfully. You're living contrary to God. And because God seems to do nothing about it, you falsely conclude that God is like you, that he understands you, that he simply accepts the way that you are. And some are even brazen enough in our culture to say that God made me this way. The idea is this, because God did not respond in anger against my sin, he must be just like me. He must not really care. A tragic, tragic conclusion. Friends, God is not like us. In fact, the God of the Bible in his infinite holiness is altogether unlike us. And we need to be confronted with that reality. A.W. Pink in his book, The Sovereignty of God, says, Soothing syrup may work for irritable children, but an iron but an iron tonic is better suited for adults. And I know of nothing that is more calculated to infuse spiritual vigor into us than a scriptural apprehension of the full character of God. God is not like us. And it makes us uncomfortable. And so what we do is we fashion a more palatable God for ourselves. Mark Twain once quipped, God made man in his own image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. We try to recreate God in our own image. And when we start to do that, we lose our objective knowledge of God. And when that is lost, 
We become estranged from God, and that manifests itself in how we live. We stop walking in God's ways. Donald Blesch makes this observation. Listen to these words or read them with me. Especially noticeable is the wide gap between the God of the Bible and the God of modern culture in both its conservative and liberal modes. The God of cultural religion is a God of sentimental love, not holy love. He is the one who forgives no matter what we do. He is the, quote, man upstairs who is approached as an indulgent father, not as a sovereign king. This is the God who is a means to man's own happiness, who allows man to attain self-fulfillment. In popular evangelicalism, God is portrayed as powerful but not invincible. His loving mercy is exalted but not his universal lordship. God, it is thought, desires our worship, but little recognition is given to his kingship over all areas of our life. And so Jeremiah's indictment was, they do not know God. They do not know God. And then, and then he names three God substitutes in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 that we turn to, wisdom, power, and riches, Verse 23, look what he says. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Jeremiah is saying, telling us as human beings, we always want to boast in something. And he starts with education, not let the wise man boast in his learning, in his education, in his intellect, in all that he knows. And then his next one was, let not the mighty man boast in his might. The point is the same. Man is not to boast in his power or his strength or his courage, or his vigor. And finally, the rich man is not to boast in his riches. The rich man is not to boast in his wealth, or his financial prowess, his his financial achievements, his portfolio, his entrepreneurial spirit, his savvy, his business acumen, or anything of the sort. And when we do that, friends, We all have this tendency to exalt ourselves, but when we exalt ourselves, we by definition diminish God. An exalting of self is a diminishing of God. And when we boast in ourselves, it's really nothing more, hear this, than a mere illusion. Boasting in yourself is an illusion. I mean, it's fundamentally false. It's fundamentally misguided. It's really nothing more than an illusion. Wisdom, we don't have any wisdom on our own. We don't have any might and strength on our own. We don't have any wealth on our own. And to think such a thing is an illusion when we boast in these things, we're missing the fundamental point, which is this. Who gives man his strength? Who gives man his wisdom? Who gives man the ability to make wealth? Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? See, the true ground for all boasting then is found in verse 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What Jeremiah is trying to do here is he is seeking to annihilate every other competing glory so that only the mercy of God shines through. Everything else that we think we should boast in is utterly annihilated. So there's one thing left standing and the only thing left standing in the universe is the mercy, compassion, kindness, and profound love of God. That's it. So Paul says, let me boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my boasting because there's nothing else in life fundamentally that I can boast in. 
So let's strip everything out. Let's remove everything. And all we have left is our boast in the fact that Jesus is who he is. The only thing really worth boasting in is God himself and, and that we have an objective, relational, personal, and covenantal knowledge of that God. That we're in relationship with that God. The ability to say that he is our God and that we are his people. There's nothing more important than knowing God. And that principal point, that is the principal point of this sermon, is that you cannot know God in that way, friends, hear me, without prayer. Now we're back to prayer. You can't know God that way without prayer. Now as I conclude, you may be coming to grips, some of you, with just, just how far you have fallen from this idea, from this trajectory that God has called us all to be on. And so a moment of tenderness and humility. Some of you have neglected your pursuit of God in prayer for years. And you've neglected your time in his word for so long that, can we just be honest for a moment? You, you don't even feel like a Christian anymore. I mean, you go through your week and you're like, man, do I even love God? I mean, I show up at church or whatever and I go through and I serve and my thing and I go to the community group, but like my heart is so like rotten inside and so dark and I find that my affections are just, just, just for everything but God and like, I just don't have any discipline to pray. I don't have any habit of reading the, the Bible. I, I, I'm just pursuing stuff that is just fleshly. Am I speaking to anyone this morning? Is anyone hearing, hearing this? You get up each day, you live for yourself, your own desires. God does not occupy even an hour of your day. You do not pray except the obligatory prayer at dinner or before bed with your kids. You do not feel an affection for God throughout the day. You're eaten up with fleshly desire. And all of that is an indication, my friend, that you are in a fallen condition, okay? I'm not saying you're lost. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying you are in a, you're in a, you're in a bad shit. You're in bad shape. Okay, you're in a fallen condition. And as you listen to me this morning, some of you may be hope, hopefully appropriately overcome by a fear inside that, yes, that has probably happened to me. And the fear is how can I restore a relationship with God that I once had? I used to love God. I used to want to share Jesus with people. I used to have this heart for prayer, heart for the word, heart for preaching, heart for the church. And now I'm lusting after things. I'm, I'm God, my God is my wallet and my money and the things and it's materialism and I'm just sucked away. And how will I ever get my love that I once had for God back? I've fallen so far away. I don't even know how to return. And I would just say the same thing to you this morning that I said to you a couple of weeks ago in my sermon on perseverance, that the mother and the baby both hold, but it's the mother's holding of the baby that keeps the baby from falling. And likewise, your restoration will come through his power at work in you. But hear me, hear me, you have to get on your knees. You have to get on your knees, okay? And believe that while you're on your knees in brokenness and brokenness before God, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to give life to you again, okay? That is, there's power there. Your hope, your hope, friend, is not in your resolve 
to be a better person. This is not a moralistic sermon. Your hope is not on, I'm gonna turn over a new leaf, I'm gonna be a better person, I'm gonna show the world that I can do this, I'll beat this, I'll conquer this. That's not your hope. If that's your hope, you're in big trouble because you're not gonna do it, okay? Even the most disciplined in the man in the world is not gonna be able to do it. Your hope is not in your resolve to be a better person, thank God. Your hope is in the fact that God is undyingly and passionately for you. That's your hope. But that restoration will come when you acknowledge in repentance and genuine sorrow for sin that you are desperate for God again, that you need him. And so go and confess your brokenness before God. And the good news is that Jeremiah does not just call us to repentance, he provides us with gospel hope. He does. Okay, Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That's good news that's blowing through right now. For some of you, you shall, God is saying to you, return to me with your whole heart. That that's gonna come, that that's gonna happen. But it's gonna happen as you seek him through repentance in prayer. He comes back, and God uses sermons like this to shake us out of our spiritual lethargy, to call us back to our first love and devotion. And I trust that he's doing that for some of you right now. A.W. Tozer, in his book, perhaps his magnum opus, Knowledge of the Holy, says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a moment. The most important thing about you is not your job. It's not your success. It's not your financial status. It's not your family. It's not your kids. It's not your wife, not your husband. It's not your children. It's not your relationship. The most important thing about you is your knowledge of God. Knowing God is the most important thing both for this life and the life to come. John says this is eternal life that we may know God. That is eternal life, knowing God. And what is it that we know about God? Verse 24, Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that, that, here's the content of our knowledge of God, that I am Yahweh, I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh who practices, here's the things, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. That's who I am. God declares, he heralds that word in front of us. This becomes the content of our knowledge about God. He is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. He is the I am that I am. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who executes love and righteousness and judgment on the earth. What's righteousness? Righteousness is God's unswerving commitment to do all that is right. God's righteousness is God's defending and protecting his own glory and ultimately God's righteousness is an attainment where Jesus perfectly attains righteousness for us so that through justification, through faith and repentance, we receive his righteousness. That's his righteousness. What's his justice? God's justice is God's willingness to bring all those who fail, fail to bow their knee to Jesus to eternal justice. 
If you refuse this offer of perfect righteousness, if you refuse the offer of my son who died in your place after I crushed him, if you refuse that son whom I crushed, then you will be judged. And rightly so. Rightly so. That's his justice. It's intended to create in us God's justice, the fear of the Lord to keep, to turn us from evil. And then God's love. What is God's love? God's love is his contra conditional concern for us. See, I love to talk about that because God's unconditional love is great, that God loves me, okay? And I did not earn my way into his favor. He loves me unconditionally, but God's love is actually better than that. It's contra-conditional in that despite who I am, despite all of my misgivings, despite all of my sin, despite all of my weaknesses, God loves me even still, Contrary to who I am, God loves me. So Jeremiah says, if you want to boast, boast in the fact that you know, that you really know who God is and what he is like. A.W. Pink again says, the foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of his perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture. An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshiped. And so friends, my second to last plea to our church that I love the most for you is this. Keep praying. Keep praying in secret, on your face before God. This is the place where you will know God. This is the place where last week you will grow in holiness. This is the place the week before where you will persevere in the faith. That's what happens through prayer. And now in this sermon I have pressed on us the importance of knowing God in prayer. It's non-negotiable if we plan to walk with God faithfully in this life and if we plan to see God in the next. But as I did last week, I do not want to end by putting the emphasis again on our spiritual resolve, but on God's grace. And this week, I want to do so by letting Jim Packer close this message with his comforting words. And here's what J.I. Packer says so, so well. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. I am graven on the palms of His hands. I am never out of His mind. All my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative in knowing me. I know Him because He first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as friend one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes us in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me and love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Isn't that amazing? That's our God, friends. Here's the thing that should just grip you this morning. So in the the moment now that when you feel the height of your sin against God, 
God is communicating to you with affection this morning that I love you, that I'm going to pick you up, and that I want you to walk with me again. Despite who you are, despite how far you have fallen from me, God is saying to you, get up, my son. Get up, my daughter. Get up and come back to me. Return to your first love, and and I will infuse you with power to do so. Power to do so. If you love God, it is because, because God has first loved you. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. To know God is a great thing, but to be known by God is greater. So this is our quest for the rest of our lives with undying passion. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Friends, that day is coming. Do not grow weary in doing good. And my plea to you in this third of four sermons is this. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Just want that to be burned, etched. Don't write that in your notebook. Write it on your hearts. Keep praying, church. That's where you will know God. And that's where you will preserve your life. And through that, you will have a very, very fruitful and God-anointed life. Hear me. Keep praying. Father, we, we need you. We confess that our, our heart is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our spirit is willing. We want to do these things. And yet we're so weak. We're so, so weak. It's so easily sled away. And so we pray for an effusion, infusion of your power and your anointing on us afresh this morning. Father, would you take individuals in here this morning whose hearts have grown cold and hard and distant and God, create a fire, a new fire. Lord, would you fan that flame into a hot and roaring fire for you. We pray for those who are living that way. Lord, sustain them there. Keep them there. We pray for our church, God. We want to be a church that is marked not fundamentally by its impact in the community on other variables, though we want those things. We want to be marked by one discipline that we are a church that knows God through prayer. We pray, we are desperate for you, God. Start the engine of prayer in the life of our corporate gathering, Lord. We have got to have you in that place. And we beg you to make us into those people, Lord. Lord, just give us the discipline, Lord. Stay after us. Press it upon us. Don't let us go. Don't let us drift. Lord, we believe that our success in the next decade as a church will come as we're on our knees. You will bring that. We trust you for this. That's what we want. Give us that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.